My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Tim McSorley. In Canada, as in all other liberal democratic states, Rhetoric about the supposedly robust space that the state concedes for democratic dissent, debate, advocacy, meaningful participation, and protest has always exceeded the reality. There has never been a point when social movements and communities in struggle in Canada have not been able to point to ways that those things are in some sense lacking. That said, however, it is also true that the magnitude of deficiencies in space for dissent debate, advocacy, and participation in public life vary considerably across different eras. The organization Voices Voix, or often just called Voices, was founded in 2010 when more than 230 organizations signed on to a declaration that began, quote, Since 2006, the Government of Canada has systematically undermined democratic institutions and practices and has eroded the protection of free speech and other fundamental human rights, end quote. The declaration then went on to identify some of the ways in which the Conservative federal government led by Prime Minister Stephen Harper had done those things. From the initial declaration, voices went on to become a working coalition. The group has a part-time coordinator, but most of its work is done by volunteers, particularly a volunteer editorial board. The core work of Voices is to prepare case studies, which carefully and thoroughly document measures taken by the government, their impacts, and their progression over time. These case studies are published online, and they periodically release reports that bring together specific instances and broader trends or themes. The kinds of government actions at the center of the case studies have covered a wide range. Some are very broad and touch many different organizations, like the targeted audits by the Canada Revenue Agency against many different charities that have progressive political perspectives. Some target individuals, such as the widely publicized government surveillance of Indigenous child welfare advocate Cindy Blackstock. Some involve vilification of and efforts to silence particular political positions, such as the multiple attacks over the years against the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement in support of the Palestinian people. Some are changes in legislation and policies that reduce the scope for participation in public processes, as in the case of environmental assessments. Others involve government control of information, like the suppression of research and the silencing of government scientists. In the eight years since the organization's launch, Voices has put together around 150 such case studies. In 2015, the Harper Conservatives lost a general election to the Liberals under Justin Trudeau. The campaign that drove that victory certainly tapped into years of accumulated frustration at the very kinds of things documented by Voices, and the victory was accompanied by rhetoric that claimed that a very different approach to governing would be forthcoming. Unfortunately, a review by Voices in 2017 of the first two years of the Liberal government's mandate characterized their progress on these issues as, quote, at best, mixed, 
end quote. While there have been incremental policy improvements in specific areas, many of the cases that Voices began documenting in the Harper years remain substantively unresolved under Trudeau. When it comes to public consultation and participation, the Liberals have created many more opportunities, but the actual influence of these processes on the content of legislation and policies has often been minimal. Perhaps the most flagrant disconnection between rhetoric and substance under the Liberals has, concerningly, been in relation to Indigenous issues and Indigenous peoples. Voices is currently in the early stages of a process of reflecting on and refocusing its work. Partly, this is about adjusting their activities with respect to the federal government to better reflect the political moment. It may also include focusing for the first time on the provincial level, and perhaps some kind of shift in Voices' organizational form. Tim McSorley is a former coordinator of Voices Voix and a current member of its strategy group, and he has a background in grassroots journalism. He's also the national coordinator of one of the member groups of the Voices Coalition, called the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group. I speak with him about the wide range of troubling moves made by the federal government in the last decade, and about the work of Voices to document those moves in the service of fostering a stronger enabling environment for civil society, democracy, debate, and dissent. My name is Tim McSorley. I'm the National Coordinator with the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group, and I'm also a member of the Voices Voix Strategy Group. ICMG are supporters of the Voices Voix Coalition as well. I'm also the former coordinator with the Voices Voix Coalition. Voices is a group that came together in 2010 to document and fight back against moves by the government to restrict debate and dissent and democratic rights in Canada. So looking specifically at case studies of when the government had either moved to remove the rights for certain groups or parts of the population, but also their attacks on specific individuals. So attempts to silence independent ombudspeople, defunding of organizations based on their political affiliations and their political stances, moves to structurally change the laws so that people have less access to their rights to participate in Canadian democracy and to express their free expression and things like that. For the last eight years now, we've put together 150 different case studies on ways the Canadian government has done that, focusing that first on the Harper government, but also continuing now in recognition that while those issues haven't been fixed, and there's definitely more issues that have been coming up with the current Liberal government as well. A big part of the issue is that governments and people in government hold a lot of power and a lot of sway on what's considered acceptable discourse and what's acceptable for people to say, what political positions fall within the mainstream and are accepted, and which ones are vilified just because somebody disagrees with you, and also are vilified in order to maintain certain people's positions of power, whether it's individually or of their group over others. I think a good example that we looked at with voices that touches on that is the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement that's pushing to have a boycott movement against the Israeli government until it ends the apartheid and the colonization of Palestine. We've seen many people in Canada demonized and vilified by members of parliament, by people in positions of power for taking that stance. Regardless of the actual debate on the issue, it's simply taking a stance for a boycott is deemed as crossing a line. And so that's one of the issues that we look at. Voices points to how people in positions of power try to limit what's considered acceptable speech. And this isn't new. It's something that's been happening for a long time. But I think that the reason Voices came about and the reason why it was important to start doing this in 2010 was that across multiple sectors, 
People saw cuts in funding to organizations that had previously gone public funding because they were working on issues that weren't popular with the current government, regardless of their politics. We saw independent spokespeople, ombudspeople, ranging from a parliamentary budget officer to others, having their budgets cut or being forced out, being fired straight out because they were doing their job as a watchdog too well. And we also just saw uh, an increasing push to exclude grassroots organizations from decisions around government policy. So ending public consultations, you know, focusing in on a very specific limited idea of who an expert is or whose opinion was valid rather than having broader debates with the public. This isn't to give the idea that there was some kind of glorious path to Canadian democracy where that was done incredibly well, but there was definitely a tightening that started to happen again in the early 2000s to 2010. And so that's why we came together to shine a bit of a light on it and to push back against it. It was primarily organizations that came together to found voices, groups in the human rights sector, groups fighting for Indigenous rights and Indigenous organizations, women's organizations, environmental organizations, human rights organizations, anti-poverty organizations, were all experiencing a similar trend of being shut out from government consultations and from the formation of government policy, but also beyond that, being vilified more and more publicly and having the resources that were used in the space that was used to communicate directly with the public, not necessarily just influencing government policy, but also doing public education work, you know, working at a grassroots level was also becoming more and more difficult because of the, the combination of a public vilification, but also of funding cuts and for some attacks on charitable status in order to limit their ability to spend resources on what people would see as really the regular work of a nonprofit organization or grassroots organization of informing people of the issues and advocating for change to protect and improve people's living situation. Talk about some of the specific case studies that Voices has worked on and about the significance of doing case studies. One of them that we did quite a bit of work on at Voices was the attack on the charitable sector in general and progressive charities in particular. Starting in around 2008, the government set up a new fund for the Canadian Revenue Agency to investigate charities and whether or not they were meeting the letter of the law on carrying out charitable activities. And I think it's important to note that Canada has a very restricted view of what's considered a charitable activity. And so even though most people would think it's common sense, charities aren't allowed to spend more than 10% of their resources on advocating for the change in a particular law or pushing for nonpartisan political change. So if you're an anti-poverty organization and you believe that a particular law should be changed in order to help eliminate poverty in Canada or support people living in poverty in Canada, if you spend more than 10% of your resources on that or encouraging people to take action on that, then you could lose your charitable status. It's an incredibly old law and hadn't been enforced in a long time because it was felt that charities should be engaged in public debate, and that could include speaking about particular laws. It's not to say charities weren't following that 10%. They did, but it wasn't something that there would be targeted audits to specifically try to catch charities for going past that 10%. But in 2008, around then, the Conservative government created a special fund under the premise that there was this growing nefarious activity among progressive charities in particular of breaking these rules. And it came at the same time that in the House of Commons, they were publicly attacking environmental organizations who were opposed to the Northern Gateway Pipeline and to other extractive industry projects and describing them as foreign funded radicals and things like that. So the timing wasn't coincidental. 
And those audits essentially tied up hundreds of thousands of dollars in progressive charities money, ranging from groups like Environmental Defense to Amnesty International to Alternatives in Quebec and others, Canada Without Poverty. The Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives was another one and really stymied and limited their ability to do their work because they were tied up in these audits. And some of them were then accused of going beyond their mandate to the point where some were told that eliminating poverty isn't a charitable mandate. And instead, it's, I think it's only reducing poverty is considered a charitable mandate. So we did a lot of work around documenting the cases of charities that were facing these audits and the chill that it created among charitable organizations in general to advocate for change because they were worried about being audited and going through a similar process and looking also at the charities that we're seeing their status threatened because they advocate for progressive change in Canada. So I think that's a big one, and it's one that I think of a lot because it had such a wide-ranging impact on not just one particular sector, but really affected environmental charities, anti-poverty charities, human rights charities, and really threatened some major organizations' existence in Canada, and it's still not resolved. That's a big one that we worked on, and I think that that points to the importance of documenting these things so we also know what needs to be fixed afterwards. Our day-to-day activities were really around documenting and publishing, so our focus was really on case studies. And I know the case study I just spoke about because I think it's so important was kind of about a more general policy and a general sector, but also a lot of our work was on the cases of individual organizations and individuals who were targeted. And so a lot of our work was reaching out, so following the news, reaching out to organizations and individuals who we saw having their positions attacked or having their capacity to engage in the work they were doing undermined, as well as trying to build links up that people and organizations would know to reach out to. For example, one of the case studies that we also worked on was regarding Cindy Blackstock, an Indigenous human rights advocate who's fought extensively to protect the rights of Indigenous children in Canada. And the fact that she and her organization were targeted for surveillance throughout her work and were excluded from government meetings. She, in particular, was systematically monitored in her professional and personal life. And actually, the Privacy Commissioner found that the government surveillance had violated the Privacy Act And so we worked on tracking those individual cases as well and trying to bring them a little bit more to light, but also trying to make sure that we had a well-documented history of all these things that were happening across different sectors. Often it's hard outside of media and journalism, which we know is also kind of stretched in what they can cover and what they do cover and also are affected by drone editorial decisions of what to cover. It's rare that we have an archive and a clearly organized history of impacts of social movements, of government attempts to undermine and attack those social movements to give an idea of where we were at that particular point in time, what the impacts were and the importance of you know, following and supporting those cases and how together they represent and show the systemic issues at play. So for me, a really important part is just to have these clear cases that we try to continue to update, but to really just have this documentation from a human rights perspective, trying to be, you know, very fact-based. That's always something that's been important for our work is to focus not so much even on the debates around the issue being attacked, but more just on what the attack or what the attempts to undermine are and what those impacts are. Having that both as a record of what happened, but also hopefully as a measure of what needs to be improved in the future. I know from my work now at ICLMG and talking with other organizations, having this kind of benchmark of what happened to be able to also track what needs to be improved and what the current and future governments need to fix is also an important part of what we've done at Voices. 
What sorts of organizations belong to the coalition? When we first started in 2010, we had about 250 organizations endorse our declaration, become members of the coalition. You know, as coalitions go on, sometimes the membership is still supportive, but it's not as active. So right now, we still have 250 organizations that have endorsed the declaration. About a dozen of those are still very active in the coalition in the day-to-day, month-to-month kind of operations and helping to monitor the cases that we work on. So that ranges from groups like Amnesty International to Oxfam to small groups like CODEV Canada and others who work on humanitarian issues. It is a wide range of organizations that signed on at the beginning. Right now, we're at a period of refocusing the coalition, of re-engaging with our members to see what right now is the most important aspects for us to be working on and to see how groups want to move forward with these 150 case studies that we've put together. You talked earlier about the origins of voices in particular circumstances during the Harper era in Canada. How have things changed and how have they not changed under the Trudeau government? There was a kind of an immediate change that we observed with the Trudeau government of re-engaging in consultation processes. So reaching out to civil society groups, reaching out to grassroots organizations to engage in consultation on new laws and new policies that the government wanted to bring in. That changed the political dynamic because one part of what Voices was responding to was the fact that the Harper government was not interested in engaging in consultations and reaching out to organizations to get their feedback on different policy decisions and on new legislation. The flip side is that while the Trudeau government has been engaging in a lot more consultation, there's still a feeling that those consultations haven't necessarily been reflected in the legislation that's come out, maybe more so than in the previous government, because at least there is some consultation. But there's also some concern that the consultation has been, at times, consultation for consultation's sake, and that it hasn't actually, at the end of the day, improved the concerns that are brought up during these consultations and make sure that they're included in legislation and in government policy. In general, people would say that the government is more responsive, but not as responsive as they try to appear through the consultation process. We had that experience at the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group, give an example where there was a consultation on the new national security law that's going through Parliament right now. That was, you know, a month-long consultation with roundtables across the country. And while there's improvements on what was tabled by the Conserves regarding national security legislation, it's definitely not reflective of what we saw, what came out in public consultation. So it's changed in that way. And if anything, it's made the work at Voices a little different in that because groups are being consulted and there's a feeling that there is a greater openness that the urgency that brought people together to form voices in the first place kind of abated a little bit because there was a feeling that things would improve. But three years in now, definitely the sense is that it's good that Voices has continued to do its work of monitoring the government because despite the promises of more openness and more consultation, that we haven't seen the results on the ground in the legislation and in the policy decisions. One thing that has improved is that there isn't as much public vilification and attacks of calling people extremists, of being radicals, of undermining Canadian democracy and being a threat to the country. We don't see that as much, which, you know, allows people to feel more confident in engaging in public debate. But really what we're after at the end of the day is to make sure that the laws and policies change. 
And we're still continuing to monitor and come up with new case studies. And a lot of it is updating existing case studies to look at the ways that the government is saying that they're responding to these issues from the Harper government years and whether or not they're actually doing that. I think that in general, it's a continuation from the Harper years. I think one of the things that we've seen predominantly continue to be very troubling and worsen under the liberal government, I think, is around consultations with indigenous people. We could make the argument that there's a worse situation with the liberals where by their rhetoric that they believe in inform prior consent and that they want to consult and that they will respect indigenous communities' rights but then at the same time have continued many of the policies of the Harper government when it comes to consultation on energy projects. So, for example, if we look at the Kinder Morgan pipeline, while they say that they're willing to engage in new consultation following the court case that said that they didn't engage in adequate consultation with First Nations communities and Indigenous communities, they gave 11 days for people to register and submit their concerns and be able to participate in this new round of consultations. And 11 days is just ludicrous on such a big issue to allow people to put together the documents and information that they need to be able to adequately participate in that kind of consultation. So while that isn't necessarily new, because we saw that happening under the Harper government, I think it's particularly troubling that the rhetoric would change to give an appearance of not just more openness, but of actually becoming so open as to meet the standards laid out in UN agreements and then to fall so short of that. In some ways, it's even more problematic than having a government that is just clear about not willing to live up to those standards and then not doing it versus a government that is willing to embrace the rhetoric around it and then continue to fall so short. How do you clearly differentiate the work of voices from the ways that in recent years the far right and white supremacists have tried to co-opt language around debate, dissent, and free expression to advance their oppressive agenda? That's definitely something that we've had to consider. Our work is rooted in the idea that democratic participation and free expression and debate is rooted in the push for social justice and the protection of human rights. And that this idea that, you know, freedom of expression is just based on people being able to say whatever they want to whoever they want in any context, free of any repercussion, isn't what we stand for. And also, clearly, if you're being criticized rightly on Twitter or in public or an organization being criticized for bringing someone like, you know, Steve Bannon to Canada to debate, those are consequences to people promoting hatred and promoting right-wing white supremacist speech. There's a difference between those kinds of repercussions and the government taking action to instill policies from their position of power to stop people from being able to participate in public debate. And that doesn't mean that, you know, laws around hate speech are problematic, but rather that our focus is on how the government wields its power to curtail people's freedom of expression. And really that when we think of the right to freedom of expression, it's regarding how the government works or doesn't work to limit free expression or to promote free expression. And that at the end of the day, that if we're going to be fighting for people to participate in public debate, and if the goal of that is to improve people's living conditions and the protection of their rights, then it isn't to argue that right-wing, white supremacist or racist or xenophobic kind of speech should be allowed and allowed to flourish everywhere it's seen, but that that in itself is a way that people act to limit free debate and participation in public debate by making it seem that just by your existence and just who you are, your opinion and your position and your voice is invalid and should be shut down. 
So if anything, this idea that extreme right-wing voices, by letting them flourish, is helping the public debate is a contradiction in that their goal is to make people who aren't like them be afraid to participate in public debate. We've always tried from the beginning to make sure that's clear, that for us, this idea of protecting people's rights and of standing up for social justice is an inherent part of how we see free expression and what we're fighting for. You mentioned earlier that Voices is engaged in a process of reflecting on and refocusing its work. What has that process been looking like? It's still relatively new, so I don't have a lot to share on that. But last spring, we had a conference in Montreal to look at different aspects of the current situation in Canada for free expression and public participation. Part of that was looking at this term that's used a lot more, I think, in international NGO discussions around the enabling environment, they call it. So what laws and policies do governments put in place that help people participate and allow people to better participate in policy making and decision making and things like that versus laws that reduce public participation, whether it's, you know, categorizing certain groups because of political positions as extremists and even terrorists under national security laws versus even laws and ways that the government approaches it that exclude people with disabilities from being able to properly participate in consultations. So we looked at that and we're reflecting on what came out of that conference to see what would be important to focus on now. And also, as I mentioned, because we're in a context now of a government that is creating new spaces for consultation, how do we look at that and how do we engage? How do we document that kind of process and look at what's good about it and also what the drawbacks are? Part of it, too, is that we've also realized that our focus has been purely on the federal government up until now. And we've been talking about expanding that to look at provincial governments and different levels of government that themselves are now taking different steps to limit public participation and to really vilify people with opposing and progressive political views. So looking at the Ford government in Ontario, looking at a potential Jason Kenney government in Alberta in, in 2019, the recent election in Quebec, with the CAQ getting in and really considering what our next step might be for that. And also for coalitions over time, you know, part of the power of voices has been as a coalition and bringing groups together. But also as we've developed this bank of case studies and developed a bit more expertise among the editorial board and editorial collective that's been working on it, while we would want to continue to work in conjunction with those members, you know, really looking at whether or not a coalition is really the best way to frame the organization or if it's more to look at it as more of a research and documentation organization that works to support these organizations across the country and what's the most effective way to use our resources because something we haven't really talked about but voices resources there's one part-time coordinator but it's all volunteer apart from just the coordinator who helps make sure that you know case studies go through an editorial process and get posted online and that the website's maintained and things like that. Really, it is all volunteer run. So also looking at with those volunteers who are involved, what's the best way for them to be putting in their time and effort to keep this project going and what can have the most impact as the political context still changes. You have been listening to my interview with Tim McSorley about Voices Voix. To learn more about their work, go to voices .ca. That's voices-voix.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 